Elad Gill is co-founder of Color Genomics, a biotech startup that sells low-cost, doctor-ordered genetic tests that screen for hereditary risk for common cancers like breast cancer. It just raised $45 million, money it plans to use to make those tests more widely available. Though he has a PhD in biology, Gill started off in high-tech, starting Google's mobile offerings in its early days, selling his from Mixer Labs to Twitter, and then staying at Twitter to advise the social network's M&A strategy. He came by the Bureau in April to talk to me, Laura Mandero, tech editor at USA Today, and Shruti Gandhi, managing partner at San Francisco venture capital firm Array Ventures, about startups and the future. Here's an edited version of that interview. Elad, let's talk about the space you're in, uh, which is interesting. You were at very well-known tech companies, and then you went into biotech. Now, in Silicon Valley, we've seen some really um, great attempts at biotech startups, um, but there's this notion that um, you can't really approach biotech in, in the same kind of um, wild-eyed manner that you might with some other consumer startups because regulatory problems are always around the bend and can really shut down the startup. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think ultimately biotech companies in general are very different from tech companies in a lot of ways. And there's only a small number of areas in biotech that I think uh, really merit um, a look from the perspective of somebody who's worked in technology. And I think those are ones where software or data-centric services make a big difference. An example of that right now is genomics, where the cost of sequencing DNA or being able to run genetic tests has dropped by literally uh, 10,000x over the last five years alone. So things that used to cost $10 million now cost $1,000, literally. And what that means is that suddenly you're generating enormous amounts of data and there's all sorts of things that you want to be able to do with that data, which means you have to use a lot of the tools from, from the tech world uh, in order to be able to really make a difference there. So I agree, in general, biotech uh, isn't going to have a giant shift due to people from technology getting involved with it. But I do think there's a, there's a handful of areas where it can, it can really be driven forward quickly. Is there... Um you know, a sort of a delay and an investment that you have to um, account for because of the regulation. So what might take a food delivery startup based on software, you know, three years would take a biotech six or something like that? Uh, yes and no. I don't think it's just a regulatory thing, um, although obviously you want to be very compliant uh, from a regulatory perspective. I think a lot of it has to do with quality. So for example, uh, my company, Color Genomics, provides a physician-ordered test for breast and ovarian cancer risk. And we really absolutely have to get the answers correct there. Obviously, all, every test has false positives and negatives, and there's always issues uh, for any type of test. But uh, you really want to make sure that you're, if you're providing somebody with this information, which can really impact their life and how they work with their physician on their, um, on their health, that you get the information absolutely right. And that means you can't do the software-style push a simple alpha, it kind of breaks, um, and it doesn't quite work, and then you fix it later. Like, that's just not acceptable. And so beyond regulatory, I actually think the personal bar with which people approach it and the way that they think about it from an ethics perspective is fundamentally different. You need to get things right, you need to do it well, and you need to do that from the very beginning. When you talk to investors for this, um, do the examples of 23andMe, which was the at-home DNA testing that was kind of sent back to the drawing board by the FDA, and most recently Theranos, um, which is having its own struggles uh, well documented by the press um, with uh, regulat regulators. Does that come up as kind of a, you know, a, a warning, the, we're worried about these types of scenarios? 
Um, what we're doing is very fundamentally different from both of those companies. So uh, we offer a clinical grade tests. So we um, have gone through what's known as the CLIA and CAP process, which is a set of um, accreditations and licensures and actually on-site inspections uh, by different inspectors, as well as we've developed our test in close concert with both uh, UCSF as well as with Dr. Mary Claire King, um, who recently won the National Medal of Science and before that the Lasker Award for discovering BRCA1. And so we're, we actually went through an enormous amount of validation and diligence to prove that our technology worked. And then when we launched our test, uh, we actually had a white paper on our website from day one explaining exactly how our methodology worked, explaining all the data behind it, explaining all the test samples. And so we've been extremely rigorous to make sure that we really meet that high bar that's needed when you're dealing with such important healthcare information. And on our side, um, you know, I think there's a set of uh, innovations that we've tried to drive, not on the regulatory side and not on the way that the genetics work. So we wanted to adopt the best practices that already exist for those things, but more around the fact uh, around how can you use software to dramatically drop the cost of some of these tests. They've traditionally cost $4,000 or more in some cases, and we've been able to offer a test uh, for $250, which is equivalent. And so that to us has been very important because it suddenly means that these sorts of tests that haven't been accessible for, for people around breast and ovarian cancer risk um, suddenly are much more accessible. And we think that's very important for people's health. Um, tell us about your journey, just to take you back a little bit a uh, few years at um, Boston. And you started out doing your PhD at MIT in biology. and seems like you're coming back full circle, but you took some pretty big stops in the middle. So please tell us about how you got here. Sure. So um, I uh, uh, got my PhD from MIT, as you mentioned, and then I basically had to sort of beg my way into a job in tech. Um, how, how did you do that? So uh, I basically did a few things. One is um, I would meet with anybody who was willing to meet with me and uh, ask them if there was any um, uh, companies or roles that they thought be a good, uh, be a good fit for. I ended up eventually reaching out to somebody at Cisco who was willing to give me an internship there. And that really helped because then I started to get some tech experience. And then when I moved out here, I joined a telecom equipment company based on that experience at Cisco. Uh, this was right at the end of the last bubble. And so in 2001, everything was collapsing in terms of companies. And so I joined a company at 120 people. It grew to 150. And then it had three rounds of layoffs. And so I got laid off. Actually, I had five rounds. I got laid off in the third round when the company shrank to, I think, about 40 people. Um, and so it was basically a very skeleton team left. And then that's when I really made the transition into software. And I, I basically offered to work for free for a startup. And that got me my first startup experience. And then eventually that led to Google and other things. So I, I know you're pretty vocal about this. Um, and you have a good blog post that I refer a lot of people to on um, when you're looking into your first jobs, what are some of the things you should look at? And I think network is one of them, um, experience. What, you know, can you talk a little bit more about that and how you got to that thinking? Yeah, it's a great question. I think ultimately there's four or five factors that really people consider when they either implicitly or explicitly when they think about um, their next role or next job. And I think people tend to overweight certain things um, early in their career, at least in Silicon Valley. And I can only speak to the tech industry. I don't understand finance or other things very well from that perspective. But at least in the tech industry, um, one of the single most important things is the group of people that you end up working with over and over and over again. And that's because uh, you typically find that there's small groups of people that tend to do all the really interesting things in the industry. So for example, people 
talk about the PayPal mafia. And those people ended up founding SpaceX and Tesla and Palantir and LinkedIn and all these great other companies. Uh, similarly, um, the Google network now has gone on to run a lot of companies. Sheryl Sandberg is the CEO at Facebook. Dennis Woodside is the CEO at Dropbox. And if you look across Silicon Valley, a lot of the executives uh, scattered throughout the valley came from Google. And so these networks of people tend to work together over and over again and pull each other into these companies. And so early in somebody's career in Silicon Valley, I think the two most important things fundamentally is the network of people that they work with and then the um, actual market or industry that they're in. Are they working in SaaS services? Are they working in consumer? Are they working on something that's going to grow really rapidly over the coming years? Because growth is the single most important thing that matters from a career trajectory for somebody. And they've actually done studies where they look at people who've graduated into a recession versus not, all else being equal. So you take somebody who graduated some, from a fancy school like Harvard and you ask, what's their career trajectory and their lifetime earnings if they graduate into a recession versus not? And people who graduate into a recession tend to do, much, uh, tend to do worse over their lifetime. Mm -hmm than people who graduate into a growth period. And the same thing is true in terms of the companies you join. If you join a company that's growing rapidly, your career is likely to go better because you'll have more opportunities, you'll have opportunities to take on management, um, and also that network of people will go on to do great things later. Speaking of that, um, you've invested in some pretty awesome companies. Um, do you, you know, would love to hear from you on how did you pick these companies? I mean, there's two pieces to it. One is the network, which I think seems like your Google network, um, Twitter network exposed you to these kind of companies. But then the second is picking, uh, which is a harder job, I think. So how did you pick well? Uh, I've been uh, very lucky in terms of the companies that have been willing to uh, have me involved as an investor. Uh, I think ultimately there have been um, two main classes of companies or two main criteria. Uh, criteria one has been, um, is it something that I or my company would use? And can I then extrapolate that into a large market? And so uh, investments that I made in companies like Stripe and Optimizely and Mailgun and PagerDuty and companies like that are all things that my company would have used. Zenefits and Payroll or now Gusto are two other examples where it was clear that Payroll was awful mm -hmm. or it was clear that it was hard to set up um, benefits. Um, and so those were examples where it just made a lot of sense to invest. Um, I think there's a second class of companies, um, and this, this applies to the first class too, uh, which where it was about, I guess, three things. Um, and they're going to sound very generic, but it's really how I think about the world. Uh, number one, is it a good market? I think a lot of angels are more um, founder-driven than market-driven. I'm actually very market-driven. I think the market is a great team in a terrible market will fail mm -hmm. in most cases, unless they exit that market, and most won't. Um, and then uh, second is the team, you know? And then lastly is if somebody calls me at 11 at night on a Friday, will I take the call? Because I'm happy to talk to them yeah. uh, because life is short and you want to work with good people. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. Uh, we were just talking about um, some, um, some sort of co-investing um, and more of a backup strategy as a CEO. Uh, it's interesting thought and would love to hear from you on uh, on the story you just mentioned around companies failing, but CEOs um, investing in other sort of success companies may have done well eventually. What do, what do we take out of that? Like, you know, is there some learning? Is should every CEO kind of on the side continue to invest, or or or, or do you think that there's something else we learn from here? Yeah, I think um, people should uh, only invest. 
or make angel investments if they are uh, happy to lose the money or willing to lose the money, I should say. Nobody's happy to lose the money, but you should at least be willing to lose any money that you invest as an angel because these are very high risk investments and you really need to go in with your eyes wide open. Um, I think that there are circumstances in Silicon Valley where um, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs all work together, uh, go to each other for advice, um, help uh, recruit e uh, for each other. So for example, if, if I'm recruiting somebody and it doesn't work out for me, maybe I'll refer them to mm -hmm. another entrepreneur I know. And so in some cases um, in, in Silicon Valley, there are circumstances where somebody will be added as an advisor or an investor to a company that they've helped. And I've seen circumstances where the person's own company doesn't work out, but that investment or that advisorship works out really well. And so, um, you know, I think it's just part of, um, you know, people being out here and contributing to each other's success. As an angel investor, do you have any kind of voice when something's going wrong? Can you point it out? Can you change something? Uh, I think you always try to help as an investor. I think you don't always have transparency into um, the inner workings of a company at all times. And so I think the way that I view my role as an investor is wherever possible to be as helpful as possible to both the entrepreneur as well as the company. And so um, it depends on the stage of the company in terms of how that translates. So for an early stage company, you know, typically I'll help them out more with hiring and firing, culture setting, um, you know, thinking through future rounds of financing. Uh, but then when a company grows and is a later stage company, maybe where I'll help out is helping people think through an acquisition for the first time. So for example, um, the, the Friday night, or actually the Saturday night phone call example is, is a real one. Uh, the founders of Stripe called me once um, at, I think it was like 10 at night on a, fr on a Saturday and asked, could I meet because they were thinking of doing an acquisition and could I help them talk through how to approach that? Um, or there are some companies that have helped think through their org structure as they get larger. How should they think about hiring executives for the first time? How should they think about um, you know, different aspects of really scaling a company up? And so I think uh, the help that's provided um, by an angel, or at least by me, hopefully changes depending on the state of the company and what's needed by the founding team. That's, uh, that's actually um, interesting because you manage an acquisition team at Twitter. Do you have any interesting uh, learnings from some of the acquisitions you made and your own journey through uh, Mixer Labs that got acquired by Twitter? Uh, yeah, I think one of the biggest, uh, so uh, as you mentioned, I used to run, or uh, the M&A team at Twitter used to report into me, and I think one of the biggest um, uh, surprises, or not really surprised, like you hear it, but the, the biggest thing that I really got to know viscerally is a lot of startups fail. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a perception, um, particularly in the Bay Area now, that if you start a company, it's going to do well. And you realize that um, from an M&A perspective, the Twitter team ended up seeing a lot of different companies that went under or who were going under and were trying to sell as a last ditch effort. And so, um, you know, uh, starting a company in some sense is uh, not very risky out here. You'll always be able to find a job if you're talented and work, work hard and, um, you know, approach things with an ethical, in an, an ethical way. But the flip of it is um, that doesn't mean that your startup will succeed and most startups do fail. And I think that's a really important thing for people to remember as they as they start and focus on companies. You're writing a book or, or a manual, um, and there it's meant to be more of a a reference for entrepreneurs in different stages of their business. Um, can you highlight a few things that stand out today, especially on scaling? Um, 
you know, are there a few chapters or stories that you can share um, that that will be a primer for the for the manual? Sure. Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, I'm writing uh, what I'm calling a high growth handbook. So it's very much meant to be a uh, almost like a reference guide that you can flip to. And there's a lot of content that's been written about the early stages of startup formation, but not a lot about the late stages. And just like there are common patterns to early stage companies or common patterns to late stage companies. And those patterns are around how do you internationalize for the first time? How do you hire certain types of executives for the first time? How do you buy a company for the first time? How do you think about product management processes or engineering processes as a company hits a certain scale? Um, and so, you know, that's really the focus of this document. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> it's it's interesting that you're you're um, writing this. We just, you know, I don't know if you follow the uh, obituaries of Andy Grove, and um, it, it it was remarkable how many people had read his uh, handbooks on management and growth, and really. Um, you know, how it shaped them. Do you um, feel like there's, um, I mean, well, two questions. Do you have, were there some quintessential business books that you read uh, before you started out? And um, is the, has the environment um, changed in any way? You've identified a niche, but um, that, you know, just necessitates a whole kind of new rethinking of, of a management book. Yeah, it's a great question. I think uh, Andy Grove's books are, are definitely classics, and it's something that everybody else um, aspires to. And I think mine is very much just a handbook. It's like a reference guide that I pulled together for fun. Um, and I would never presuppose that it uh, you know, will last <laughs> like Andy Grove's did. Um, I think in terms of books that I um, especially like, I think Ben Horvitz's book is, is pretty amazing. Um, I really like Reed Hoffman's various books, um, uh, like The Alliance and others. And then I think there's a really good book called First Break All the Rules about management. And uh, there's another one called um, Managing People, which I think is sort of like the perspective from somebody who's more technical about how to manage people. And so I think those are some of the sort of classics uh, that are worth going back to over and over again. Why were you so eager to get into tech and software? I mean, you were in Boston with a uh, PhD. You could have gotten a job in biotech there, right? Yeah, I think it was three things. Uh, the first thing is I wanted to work more on the product or business side. And as somebody with a PhD in biology, uh, I thought that they would just stick me at the bench, you know, working. Um, second, um, from an impact perspective, I thought that the, the cycles in biotech are very long, uh, but in software, they're very fast. So you can build a product in eight months and launch it instead of waiting 10 years to see if a drug worked. So I wanted something that I could quickly see the impact on. And then third, I thought that from the perspective of reaching hundreds of millions of people, that was the clearest way by which you could really have an impact was by uh, building software-centric products. And so Google was a great example where when I joined it, it was um, really hitting its stride and growing dramatically. And it was a very, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. It, it was a company that really believed in its mission and really believed that it was trying to do good things for the world. And so I think it attracted a class of people um, who similarly believed that through technology you could do great things. And I know that's kind of almost mocked these days, you know, like this. Yeah, it's like the Silicon Valley show just makes a farce out of that. And it's and I've definitely seen the people who claim that they want to make a difference and they're just kind of like, you know, yeah, right, right. But I do think there are people who fundamentally believe that technology can be used in very positive ways. And I actually think it's very unfortunate that shows like Silicon Valley have twisted that around 
and made that almost laughable because, um, you know, how embarrassing is it to admit that you think technology can change the world? You know, that's actually something that, you know, not everybody necessarily agrees with. And, um, uh, but the flip of it is there are people who fundamentally think that they can make a real difference for people. We wanted to talk a little bit about um, the current market and the in the current market, uh, we were talking in one of the podcasts with Gokul about current market evaluations and exits. Um, as an early stage investor, what's your trajectory? And with this quarter not having any major IPOs um, come through, I know you're also one of your other expertise is secondaries. Um, so I, I guess to bring a lot of these things together, secondaries, IPOs, and then even valuations with some of the companies, how do you think about all that right now? Yeah, it's definitely been an interesting period. So uh, to your point, a lot of companies have uh, effectively done many IPOs for their existing shareholders without actually going into public markets. And they've done that through both primary funding rounds where uh, large investors will, direct, will invest directly into the company, and then secondary rounds where um, investors will buy out shares from existing employees or investors. And what that's done is that's delayed the time frame by which companies have had to go to public markets for liquidity or have had to list on a public market. Um, that's a very big shift in a number of ways. Uh, for angels, it means that a lot of angels are reasonably illiquid. Um, because they've been investing now for five or six years. Um, there haven't been very many exits. And so I know one or two people who've been stepping out of the market because they just, you know, two thirds of their net worth or half of their net worth is, is in these angel investments and they just don't want to um, risk any more capital that way. Um, from a valuation perspective, obviously, there's been a shift in valuations. And I think overall, that's probably a healthy thing. Um, what I've seen is that there's almost two classes of companies. There's companies that continue to be able to raise money without any real issues. Um, they'll have very contested rounds. It'll take time, you know, like it should, a couple months. But um, And then there's companies that, you know, perhaps got ahead of themselves in terms of valuation and are having real difficulties now raising. And I think we'll see a lot of that uh, come to fruit um, towards the end of this year or early in 2017. But how do you, as a CEO of a company who raised more money, you know, not even um, later stage companies, even maybe uh, series A, B round companies who've raised, um, or early stage companies who've raised a 10, 12, 15, 20 cap, but don't have those metrics for the next round, they may be good products. Is there some advice you have for for these founders um, or like, is there a chapter in your book for them on how to build a long-lasting company and weather through this storm in some ways? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the companies that are, are doing well, um, who have clear customer value, who are um, you know running margin positive or unit economic positive businesses and are on good growth trajectories will be able to continue to raise money on good terms. And so... I think what happened is because so many companies were raising at such high valuations, the entire market shifted, which means that companies that weren't very good and that didn't have some of those characteristics were able to raise money at very high valuations. And now those valuations are almost a trap because they either do a giant down round or they aren't able to raise any more money. And I think many of them are choosing um, to take money on uh, less good terms than they, they were able to before. Um, and I think that's just part of the natural cycle of things that's happening. I think it's a good lesson, which is don't raise ahead of where you're at. In other words, 
you don't have to take the much higher valuation. You can take a lower valuation. It's it's sort of a negotiation. And for my own startup, for our Series A, we actually took a lower valuation than what was on the table because we didn't want to end up in the situation. So I think some companies did think ahead on this, and we're trying to be very thoughtful about. Let's make sure that um, the way that we approach the business is very thoughtful, and that we we plan uh, for the long term. So. Is that um, in concert with the, there's another piece of conventional wisdom right now, I think it's just like raise as much money as you possibly can because, you know, you don't know when the spigot is going to be twisted all the way. Um, do you disagree with that? I think that there's um, two aspects to that. One is how much money should you raise? And then second, um, there's actually an old saying from uh, one of the founders of Kleiner Perkins, which is when they pass you hors d'oeuvres, take two. And that meant when money is available, you know, raise extra. And this was said like 20, 30 years ago. So I don't think this is a new concept. Um, I think fundamentally what you want to do is make sure that you have a clear financial plan. You know what your revenue is likely to be, what your burn is likely to be. And then make sure that you have money for at least say 18, 24, 36 months, um, depending on your plan and what milestones you think you'll hit in that period. And then you pad it by 30 to 50% because things always take longer or end up being more expensive, or there may be some issue or something else that you need to use capital to fix. And so that's sort of my rule of thumb. So, you know, some companies go out and raise these massive rounds just as like protection. Um, If you're very late stage, that may make sense. You know, if you're slack and you're raising a bunch of money, and you may use that for acquisitions or other things in your multi-billion dollar company, that makes sense. If you're a five-person startup, you know, it makes less sense. So I think it's sort of a little bit tied to the market you're in, the type of product you're building, how capital intensive it is, and then also where you are from the life cycle of a company perspective. So the misconception with a lot of founders in Silicon Valley is we can build it. If it doesn't go anywhere, someone will acquire us. Is that going to continue to stay um, true this year yeah i think that there's ultimately uh three types of acquisitions that occur maybe it's four types uh the first one is a team buy where a company just acquires a team that has a specific talent base and you know there's all sorts of examples of that that facebook has done in the past or google's done in the past or twitter's done in the past um second is a product buy that's where a company is buying a product to fill a hole in their own lineup or alternatively to fill a technology gap Um, those tend to be in the sort of tens of millions range um, in terms of of size of acquisition. And then there's sort of the big um, asset purchases where you have a unique, defensible, strategic thing that other people want. That would be like, uh, you know, Google buying YouTube or Facebook buying Instagram. These are unique things or unique companies that are are maybe impossible to reproduce because of their network effects or their defensibility. Um, And then lastly, um, there's these roll-ups. So for example, when Oracle buys things, in part it's due to cost consolidations where they're able to um, you know, get operational efficiencies through acquiring something and then cross-sell it through their sales team, but it isn't truly, in some cases, strategic. Um, so, you know, depending on which of those four types of acquisitions, um, there's going to be different acquirers at any given time in any different market condition. And so I think, for example, the team buys have been decreasing in number, mm-hmm. um, at least as far as I can see. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that they're going away. It just means that, that fewer of those are happening. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the product and the sort of strategic buys um, will continue. And, you know, it just comes down to um, the valuation at which they're acquired and everything else. But, you know, I definitely think uh, M&A will never go to zero. It's just going to go through cycles like everything else. 
for the listener who's trying to figure out where to spend the next three, four years of their career, um, is there a company or a particular set of um, markets where they, you know, where they can go explore building a company in? So if you were not working on color genomics, what would you go build now? Yeah, um, it's a great question. So uh, hopefully people will come work at Color Genomics, <laughs> to your <laughs> point. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of um, broad, uh, still way open areas in software. And I think a lot of the things that um, your firm, Array, looks at sort of fits into that. So for example, there's a number of companies that have basically taken pieces of infrastructure or business processes and turned them into APIs or SaaS services. So Stripe is an example of that. Checker is a recent example of that that does background checks as, a, as an API. Um, you know, Twilio does that for telephony. Um, and I think that if you took a Fortune 500 company and you took it apart and you asked, what are all the things that are done either semi-manually or don't work very well from a business process perspective and you built a company that does that as a service, there's probably a dozen multi-billion dollar companies that you could create. Um, and so I do think that there's still enormous opportunities there. And a great example is Checker, which launched... Um, I think in the last year or two, but that company could have existed in one form or another any time over the last five years. There's no new technology underlying it um, in terms of, you know, uh, you know, some new, you know, mobile isn't the reason that Checker exists kind of thing. Um, and so I think there's a lot of those opportunities and you just need to find the people who've really thought those through or who had to work with them, who had to work on those a few times. Uh, Mailgun is a good example, which ended up getting acquired by Rackspace where they were a um, mail uh, deliverability and sort of uh, email server company. And the reason they started it is because the two founders built the same product three different times as internal infrastructure for three different companies they worked at. And they said, if these three companies need it, everybody else should need it. So we're just going to build a general solution. And I think there's lots of those types of companies that could still exist. And what do you call that universe of companies again? I would call it either um, API-driven companies or SaaS services, or you know, it really depends on the on the exact type of company. Well, thanks, um, Elad. Very helpful, and we look forward to your book. Is how's the book gonna? Is it gonna be in paper? Oh, uh, book is uh, overstating what it is. <laughs> um, so really, what it is is just a website that we're gonna be putting up, or that I'm gonna be putting up. Um, that. Um, is basically covering sort of almost like reference material around different areas of scaling a company. And so it's a bit of a passion side project. It's just going to be a website. It's I don't have any aspirations of grandeur in terms of either. I think the one reader will be my mother kind of thing. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't anticipate enormous usage, but I just thought it would be a nice thing to do. And um, it's been fun uh, just sort of thinking through some of these issues or common questions that entrepreneurs have given me and just putting them down on paper. Okay, so you can look for this, not a book, but a web-driven um, piece of content coming from Elot soon. Um, you can follow him um, on the web at, what is it? Uh, it's aladgill.com. And um, you can check out our other podcasts on SoundCloud. Look for USA Today Tech and search for entrepreneur. You can follow Shruti at at Shruti, A-T-S-S. H-R-U-T-I and I'm at Laura Mandaro L-A-U-R-A-M-A-N-D-A-R-O Thanks for listening.